0: must be like the wolf pack not like six-pack
1: teamwork yes
2: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of There's No Eye in Podcast, a podcast about teams. Being in teams, leading teams, generally making the most out of your teams. I am Mark Johnson. I am a performance maker and a performance teacher and I am joined as always by my partner in pod, sports coach, head of co-curricular and sport at our shared workplace, Sean Gallagher. Hello, Sean. How are you doing today? Very well, Mark. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good. How has your break been? It's been relaxing. I've been recharging. And yeah, ready to go now. So yeah, it's always appreciated, especially for those who don't work in a school we do appreciate our holidays we yeah definitely over this holiday what has been catching your coach's eye i was a bit disappointed uh that the england barbarians rugby game didn't happen because apparently barbarians didn't
2: stick to covid guidelines which was a shame because i was looking if anybody had a whoosh just then that was that news passing me right by <laughs> <laughs> they were supposed to play and didn't yeah, I, d-
0: I don't know the ins and outs, but I think it was just uh, I'm not sure if they went for a meal or something, but they yeah, they broke guidelines. And so that game couldn't happen. So that was a bit of a shame. I'm also watching season two of Take Us Home, the Leeds United documentary. And I think my interest was fueled again in watching season two because I listened to a TIFO podcast, which had the director and I believe the CEO or chairman of the club talking about how the documentary was made, which was really interesting, actually. The amount of footage that goes into to what we see in the 50 minutes is mm. unbelievable. And that relationship between creative and corporation, basically, because yeah. Leeds United don't want to come across as looking stupid or anything like that. They want a, a real
2: but solid representation of the club. I do find so- that very interesting about the all or nothings and the hard knocks and the things like this, where we know that they are filming more than they show and that the production companies are building a story and looking for a storyline as they're filming. So the truthfulness of what's being represented is always, is always something for me to consider. I, I think about when it's NFL films making hard knocks, they have a product and a reputation to protect as well. So when you have the crazy player on the team going off the rails, how much of that do they, are they prepared to show in order to maintain their reputation?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it was quite an interesting dynamic on the podcast. I have both of them on to discuss that. Yeah, I definitely recommend um, the, the, the Take Us Home documentary uh, about Leeds United. Uh, again, even if you're not a big football fan, even if you're not a Leeds fan, which I'm certainly not, it's still very interesting. And lastly, Mark, I've been doing some more reading. If anyone knows me, they know I'm a very slow reader. It takes me a long time to get through books. And I'm still on The Trillion Dollar Coach, which is about uh, Bill Campbell. And just one of the chapters is looking at just how he built communities. So inside the workplace, but also outside the workplace, whether that was trips away, but he bought a bar and allowed loads of people to come in there from previous companies and I believe like football clubs that he'd worked for in the past, American football teams that he worked for in the past like alumni from university, just always like putting on trips and having people over and just seeing that as a hugely important thing. So in the book, it just says, always build communities inside and outside of work. A place is much stronger when people are connected. And obviously we know that to be true, but I think it's a really tough thing to do because some people do have work and their social life completely separate things and don't see any correlation between the two. So I I was really intrigued by that chapter and it's certainly something I always wanna do. I wanna be part of communities and I've tried to build some of that in my role, but it's definitely one of the tougher things to do. I don't know how you feel, Mark, but definitely feels like quite a tough one.
2: Yeah, it's because you, you can't necessarily impose community on people. You can only create environment and inv- invite people into it. But that invitation uh, and how you you stage that invitation becomes really important. There's someone who I hope to get on the podcast at some point soon, who is a theatre maker with young people. And every year they have this retreat, like a, like a, a week-long retreat with the entire company, young people and all, where there is an agenda of continuing the work that they're doing in the workshops. But generally, like his observation is the work that gets done there is in that community building, and the creating of connections that allow creativity to flourish, or that allow, in a sports context, trust to flourish, that means you're prepared to pass to someone or make a risky move or do something that, uh, knowing that the other person's got you covered, that happens not in their training sessions or their workshops, but having pizza around a massive table or sitting around a campfire. And absolutely.
0: Absolutely. It allows trust. It, it allows trust to be built just in an intangible way that you can't really sometimes even see uh, or feel, but it just happens. Like you said, if you go on in a tree and you're around the campfire, someone starts playing the guitar, painting a very uh, nice picture here, but yeah, if someone starts singing, next minute you've got a bit of a sing-along with colleagues. Now, when would you ever have a sing-along with your colleagues in the workplace? So I think it's really important. One thing I will say, just a caveat, that is. This was a very wealthy man. So yeah. when he's doing trips to Carbo and inviting people along, he has the money for it. But there are many wealthy people who wouldn't share, share that wealth yeah. out. And he, he paid for a lot of this himself out of his own pocket. So as I said, it's not all about money. But when you were saying about
2: creating an environment, yeah. It has to be equal. You can't throw out an invitation that only is accessible to half your club or half your group. 100 percent yeah so that was interesting so that's been my week mark very excited for our episode today this is i'm gonna say the biggest name we've had on as a guest so far so thanks to sean for for fishing this one out of his rolodex we got in touch with a chap called danny townsend who is the ceo of sydney fc one of the biggest clubs if not the biggest club in australian football and spent ages talking to him all the way from sydney so from the other side of the world about what goes into making a performance club but also a performance business because he not only is he having some input on the football side of operations but also building this community of fans and of staff members into a team so we talked to danny townsend about all of that it's He's a legend. It's a super exciting chat. So I think if you don't mind, Sean, let's jump straight into that. Absolutely. Let's go. Danny Townsend then. Team. Yes. Today, we are massively privileged to introduce onto the podcast, Danny Townsend. Danny is the CEO of Sydney FC, current champions of the A-League in Australia. Am I right?
1: I'd say back-to-back champions, Mark there you go as
2: the non-sports person on this podcast i'm feeling like i'm going to get corrected a fair bit today please do because if i'm underplaying how good this team are i wouldn't even know
1: i'm not um, precious mate i'm not precious okay
2: <laughs> but we're the best danny thank you so much for coming on i'm aware we're talking from the other side of the world at the moment so it's evening and summer where you are or it moving is. Into, we'll summer. Getting into
1: summer yeah exactly <laughs>
2: and the middle of the morning and the grimmest of autumn winters in London here. So really appreciate your time. I've given a ham-fisted intro already, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you've got to be the CEO of Sydney.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me on, guys. It's great to, to be on here. Yeah, look, uh, my, my background started probably... Back in the day as a professional footballer myself, so like any kid growing up, you aspire to do something with your life that you love doing every day and and being a footballer was something that you know I was probably wasn 't always driven to be, but <laughs> ended up that way, which was great and really enjoyed the time I had playing that was cut uh, a little bit short prematurely due to injury which sort of you know it was a, was a blessing in disguise really because it allowed me to get on with my life and go get a proper job, which I did. <laughs> I think in in, in life sometimes you, you deal with disappointment in different ways and I think for me it was a situation where I, I got the best of both worlds. I got to enjoy what it's like to, to be a professional athlete but then equally not, not stay in the game long enough to, to jeopardise the rest of my career outside of, outside of football. After my injury, I... Got stuck into to being educated. I think during my my playing career, I knew I wasn't going to play for that long, so I didn't have a sudden injury. it was a sort of a, a debilitating injury over time. so I was able to plan a little bit ahead, knowing that I wasn't going to have a long career on the field um, and start to plan my career off it and uh, whilst my teammates would finish training and go to the beach, I would go to university and and study and yeah set myself up for life after football and like I said that came. Prematurely, but like I said, I didn't really have any regrets with that. It was you dealt the cards you are, and you, you get on with it. And then I jumped straight into to, to working and, and getting experience out in the real world, yeah. and yeah, that led me to setting up Repicon, which was an agency that that we built um, from scratch out of Sydney. That took me on a fifteen year journey around the world, and. I ultimately led me to be getting myself back into Sydney and selling that agency, and yeah, and, and starting in this role at Sydney FC, where I've been now for three years.
2: Amazing! And just for the purposes of context, Sean, that's how you know Danny originally via Repucom.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah.
2: So we are talking to your old boss, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, very much so. And (laughs) everyone else's boss in the building. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, it it was my first kind of dip into a real job, basically. Everything I'd done before that was coaching. And so coming out of kind of university, me and Danny met. We had a conversation and I was just very lucky at the time that he was looking for a few interns over a summer to jump on board because the business was growing. And I jumped on, made it through the summer. Through some miracle, I, I think the other candidates were just awful. <laughs> so.
1: no, hang on, Sean. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did, did my recollection is that that your mum may have taught my daughters <laughs> at, at kindergarten. Is that correct? Yes, that is true. Yes. Yeah. So the true story is
0: that we met at a sports day that is correct we, we met at a sports day that my mum asked me to help out with That's and I'd right. done a 10 out of 10 job of helping out on that day Danny you might have raced in that did you race? Did you, yeah uh, I, th-
1: I think I won yeah
0: yeah I don't know if
1: you won you may have come second it's all coming <laughs> really? back to me now well i tell you the one lesson for everyone to, le- to learn out of that was that do what your mum tells you to do she told you to turn up and help out the at the kindergarten athletics day and you got a job out of it so there you go What one one hundred percent. It's so
2: interesting you say that, Danny, because literally the last podcast that we recorded was a conversation that like the fundamental lesson I took away from that was if you aren't stepping forward, you aren't gonna uncover anything. That you've gotta put yourself forward at risk of failing, at risk of embarrassment or whatever, Mm. and be looking for opportunities because like Sean Sean wasn't to know that his future employer and top flight podcast guest was going to be the person he <laughs> met that day yeah. but that he that that as people we can either look inwards or we can look outwards and I think mm. there's something about the current time that that has put that in people's minds actually because of that direction we're looking. You guys obviously have had quite a similar lockdown experience over there to us, and it had a massive impact on your industry. Any live industry, whether it's performance, which is my jam, or sports, which is both of yours, took a huge knock. I didn't necessarily want to get straight into how this has impacted us, but is there anything you've taken away from this process of going through lockdown, of experiencing something global like this that has changed how you work or how the club works.
1: Yeah, look I, I think you go back to the point earlier around Sean turning up that day it's we had a saying at Repicom success was all about turning up. If you keep turning up and you keep you know putting yourself in a position where you may be uncomfortable or you may be meeting people for the first time, you never know what's going to come out of that meeting or that that opportunity. Just turning up day in day out there's a high um degree of, of success that comes out of that type of attitude. And I think in a way the, the COVID situation for us as a game has thrown the rule book out the window. That's one thing mm. I've learned from this is that there was never a playbook that we could follow with a global pandemic in, right. in, in any way, shape or form, whether it be football yeah. clubs or, or life in general. So I think what it's taught people and at least taught me is that flexibility is critical and, and being able to adapt to the situation that's served up to you is the difference between success and failure. And I think we in life, in business and in personal lives, probably all got settled with regimented structure and what as much as lockdown meant we were in structure, but the ability to come out at the other side, either your business intact or your personal life intact was about your ability to adapt. Mm. And I think that's a really important lesson that you can apply to many facets of your life as a learning coming out of COVID. I couldn't couldn't
2: agree more. Yeah, completely. Should we start talking about football?
1: Danny, obviously huge
0: amounts of success with Sydney, with with you as CEO. Football clubs are huge kind of organisations. And obviously your work at RepuCom grew and grew. You came into this situation where a lot of things had already been in place. You're stepping in now to something else. Whereas with RepuCom, you were able to guide it to where it needed to be and have very hands-on approach to that situation. How was that to step into a different environment, organisation, culture after such a, a long time of your work with RepuCon? And what were some of the key learnings that, that has happened over the last couple of years since you've been with the club?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, Sean. With RepuCon, we, we got paid to learn. Like we were basically making it up as we went along and mm. the, you didn't need to necessarily worry about culture or other parts of the company because we, we created that from the beginning and, and it yeah. just was, was more an organic sort of outcome that was a, a product of Paul and, and mine and others who were involved from the very beginning, work ethic, weight, weight level of expectations we set people, you know, the standards we set, they were all very much They weren't contrived, they were what they were. And the company evolved that way. And people that came into the company either loved them or hated them, frankly. And Mm. we, it was almost a self regulating organization that when, people came into it and realised, hang on, this pace or this competitive tension that we created in our environment was just not for them. They, they moved on. And others just absolutely loved it and thrived in it. And we're really proud of the amount of people working in senior roles around the global sports industry that started like you did, Sean, as a intern at our, our agency. And I bump into them all the time around the traps, and some of them are CMOs of sporting organizations or what have you. And, and that's great. That, that just demonstrates that you you, you played a little part in a talented person's evolution as an individual. But if you go back to the comparison to a football club, is that you're right. I came in, the club was at that stage about 12 years old, I think. So I've been there now three years. We've just gone past our 15-year birthday. We'd, as a club, we'd, we'd probably been successful but had some ups and downs mm. over the years. And I think my role was to to really stabilise and I suppose then take out some of those peaks and troughs that existed. Mm. We're the biggest club in the biggest city in the country and we shouldn't have troughs in our business right. cycle, we should have. You're never going to win every year. You can you go back through history of the EPL. Yeah, there's always going to be different winners year and year out. Leicester proved that, and there's always outliers who come outside the the probably predictable four to six that exist in in that competition. We're one of those, call it two, three, four in Australia, that should be competing for trophies every year and. The last five years, we've probably had unprecedented success as a, as a club. But, but if you go back to the original question, which was how, how did you deal with the, the sort of coming into a half cooked cake, so to speak, yeah. is really is, uh, the best advice I would give is watch and learn for long enough. I think people make mistakes around coming into organisations, and feel there's this urgency. With a broom
2: and like yeah, sweep that's there.
1: It's almost like I've got to go put a couple of heads on sticks so I can walk out and show everyone I'm the boss. I, I don't think right. you need to do that. You need to. You get more respect from people if you observe. You identify, you you get things wrong. Like I can tell Mm. you now there's people in my first impression, which I'd like to think is usually reasonable. I got it wrong with people that I would have, if I acted with haste and got rid of them, would have lost some really talented people. They just were different. And they were playing a role in the organisation that was really important, but I didn't necessarily connect with them and go, okay, that person's an A grader that I want to keep. But I let them play their course and... But in time I realise their value and utility to the organization and you know I'm happy to say those people are still at the club and doing great work. So yeah. I think there's definitely a need to just observe.
2: It is a really useful skill as a as someone stepping into a building or a really important process to recognise who those Jenga pieces are. Because I think it is so precarious. You remove someone that isn't the right person to remove or shift them around and you actually are doing a destabilizing job on something that was yes delicately balanced but balanced
1: but not broke but not broke i think that's that's important you, you look at it and you say you know i always like to, to talk to other managers or, or, or people with direct reports in organizations you don't need them to be your best mate this is not yeah. a picking an exercise of do I want to work with this person and invite them around for a dinner at my home or do I want someone who's going to do the task I need them to do with consistency and and, and um, excellence. And, and I think once you get past that and realise that these people are all different and yeah. they don't need to be your best mate, they're just going to be people that are going to contribute and you need a, a mixture of really ambitious people with plotters you know, people that yeah. are just happy to do a job and turn up every day and, and do an excellent job at that one dimension of the club that you really need. And they're happy with that, we're happy with that, and they will, they'll, they'll stay the course. Is it is it
0: about, I guess sometimes it's about removing your ego to an extent, I would imagine, because I see it a lot, especially with other coaches, and it's I want them to coach in this way because it's how I think they should be coaching but we have different personalities different backgrounds different experiences and so we could be doing the same job or just as good a job but i see it in a different way because it's not how i would do it and i think it's one of the hardest things to remove that bit of ego sometimes take a step back and look at the whole picture and say are they doing a good job and if so then that's fine for the organization
1: yeah absolutely there's always different ways to do it and i think if you are as a manager or a leader hell-bent on your way, you, you don't tend to get the best out of your people. You've got to give them room to breathe and, and you've got to back them to do the job. You might watch it and go, mm, I wouldn't have done it that way. But ultimately if they get the job done, then, then that's good. And I think by letting people – come into your organisation or stay in your organisation and do things differently is actually a good thing because it just brings a different a different spin on things or, Yeah, sometimes some interesting situations that you navigate your way through, but ultimately you get through. Yeah.
2: And I think the bigger the organisation, the more important it becomes. I don't think I've ever heard the word micromanager used positively. Like no no one don't. wants someone coming in and telling them how to do their job when their office is an office and your office is keeping the green
1: yeah and look you, you, it's, it was a really important lesson for us to learn in the Repucom journey you went we went from two guys sitting in a office in sydney with an overturned door on horses to <laughs> to, to a, a, a two thousand person organization and we'd never done that before so you, you've got a not bring, many people have danny <laughs> No, but, but some people have. But the, the point the point I'm trying to make was that we'd never done it before at that point in time. So yeah. if we were to think that we could do it without assistance from people that had been down that path, we'd have been kidding ourselves we wouldn't have. But it is hard to give up that control when you yeah. doing something really small and it suddenly gets to a stage where it's really difficult to manage because of the scale of it. You've got to be prepared to let people do their thing. And, of course, you want to hold them to account. You want to make sure that they're executing but the way they do it and how they do it i think you've got to give people some some smear
2: from a club point of view where does the ceo sit as a jenga piece what do you have oversight of everything or is it operational? or what what do you find your day becomes
1: what, what attracted me to the, the role here is being a, a, an ex-footballer. I've probably got a different skill set to some CEOs where I can provide input into a lot of the football matters at the mm-hmm. club. That said, there's people that we employ in the football side of the club that are far better versed at that than I am. We've got players that have represented their country at World Cups and coached for 20 years and achieved a lot more than I ever did with the boots on or off from a footballing standpoint. I, I said when I came into the role... Being a football person, the journalists who interviewed me were, oh, it's great that there's a football person finally in charge. Will you make, <laughs> will you be making all the football decisions? And I said, <laughs> I pointed at it, like the head coach at the time was Graham Martin, and I said, look, you know, he, if I start telling that guy what to do, then we're in a bad place. I can work with him and and probably understand what he's doing better than maybe some other CEOs that came from a non-football background, Mm. but ultimately go back to your point earlier around letting people do what they do, let the football people do their thing. Now, I I stay across it because the buck stops with me as a CEO. If we win or lose, ultimately it comes back to me, both on and off the field commercially. If we're winning or losing, that's on me. If we're winning or losing football matches, it's on me. So it's incumbent on me to make sure I've got the best people managing those parts of the organisation to ensure you get success.
2: I found it interesting that your current head coach has been with the club since day one in some form and wondered how invaluable that is to have that institutional knowledge.
1: Yeah, look, Steve's been an important part of the club's history from as a player, now as a youth team coach, as an assistant coach, to now a head coach. It was a really, it was a bit of an important crossroads for the club in that we had a, a head coach in um graham arnold who was you know one of the i would say at that point in time the preeminent coach in australia he had been identified by the national team that he was ready to to take the national team job he indicated that he wanted to do that and therefore he was under contract we had to work a way out of that but but importantly we went on a global search and ended up with a guy who was right under our nose, assistant coach. And we had some coaches apply for that role that were globally recognisable names, Premier League coaches, World Cup national team coaches from different countries. And we felt it was a real, it was a statement around the maturity of our club. The club was bigger than an individual. And we had these coaches that said, oh, well, if you want me to come and do this job in Australia, I'm going to bring an assistant, a goalkeeper coach, a a, a masseuse. We're a club first strategy. You're coming alone or you're not coming at all because we've got a great goalkeeper coach. We've got a great assistant coach. We've got a great second assistant. We've got a great head of high performance. That's why we're the reigning champions. So Mm. if you want to come work at our club, you're going to work inside our club and it's going to be about the club, not about you and we felt steve epitomized everything that we needed out of a out of a coach at that point in time to demonstrate to those externally that our club had gone through that maturation process we were able to do that it doesn't su- surprise me then danny when when we see the
0: success of the club because when you say that club first mentality i think that's really interesting to me because i think what you can see from across the premier league and just clubs worldwide is that they are Putting all their eggs into one basket with with this head coach or this manager, it seems nowadays, and yep. it's all going to be based on what they can bring to the club, and that they're going to be the saving grace for that club, and they're going to change everything around. Opposed to saying we have a very good setup here, we have an excellent organization. We'd like you to come in to strengthen, bring your strengths to this club, and off we go, and we can do something amazing here. But so I think that's really important because I think a lot of boards, uh, CEOs, chairmen, owners. They're, they're all relying on this kind of golden goose, so to speak, in this one coach. And I don't think organizationally it's just the manager that is going to be the success of that club ultimately.
1: Yeah, I, I've been saying all along is it's, it's not about the money you spend necessarily on your players, it's the money you spend around them to put them mm. in an environment where they can be the best version of themselves they can be. And that includes the coaches you put around them. And yeah, professional footballers are all good footballers. That's why they're professional. Yes, there are degrees of quality there that you will find their level. But I think well, there could be 100 different footballers we could put into our first team. And they'll all do a good job if they're in an Mm. environment that makes them happy, if they get well looked after, if the culture of the club speaks to them in a way they like, and they love winning. So winning helps everything because professional athletes by nature are competitive and they want to be around other winners. So we do a lot of work on ensuring that the players we bring in and the coaches we bring in. Are winners and they've got to, Mm. and and they propagate that winning culture. And that's a really important ingredient in that success. You might have a player that might be more talented than another player, but they don't have that same willing mentality. And and if you can find that and bottle it, that's utopia.
2: Yeah, you used the phrase when you were talking about your previous company of maintaining a competitive tension within the group. So there's always uh, a potential energy there towards the goal of winning or towards the achievement. And you do see it when clubs lose it. You see it it's when right. they either, they like, there is, even in an organization like the NFL where there's a salary cap uh, mm. and there are these methods to try and equalize the league so that it's not just about money. Everyone has the opportunity to draft a superstar. Yeah. There are still teams that don't have that competitive tension within them or that competitive tension turns in on itself. So where they're fighting rather than competing with, is there anything you do to maintain those personalities or maintain the positive version of that competitive tension?
1: Yeah, I think you're always going to, by nature, have players that want to play every week. Yeah, that's that's the way way footballers are. But at the same time, I think respecting each other is a really important piece. If you're not playing, then you're still buying in to Mm. the the end game. And I think that's one of those things that that we we struggle with sometimes in some clubs where they might get a a really – a really tight squad of high profile, highly paid players and fill the rest of the squad with lesser quality players because Mm. they can't afford them after they've blown all their money on their big, the first 11. Whereas getting that level of, of competitiveness, the egos that, that, that probably get parked to the side when you're in an environment of of equality yeah. is is a really important ingredient in success, and and I think that's something that we've done well at our club. We, we've look, we've always yeah. had star players, but we've ensured that the character references we've had with those star players, are such, that we know they're going to fit in. Right. Quite often, we will, well, we will not sign a player unless we have a very clear view on their character and have had people we trust verify what they're like. Because I think it's a, a, keeping that equilibrium is really important.
0: Would you be able to see Danny whether That same sort of ethos is running through down the age groups. I'm really interested in academy football and before the player has actually become a professional, that kind of journey. We've had a few coaches on here talking about that who are academy coaches at high levels. And sometimes a lot of young players are getting a bit of stick for being on social media and maybe Mm -hmm. being a bit flashy um, and maybe thinking they've made it before they have. Is there anything that you work on within those academy boys to, to keep them on track um, with the potential of moving into the first team?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really important point actually because our, we have a football philosophy at the club which is documented and that football philosophy starts at our under-13s and runs all the way to our first team. They play the same way. They're encouraged to play a certain style and a certain formation that is consistent with how the club want to play football which goes back to our club first Policy, But, you know, you, you've also got to be careful to keep a balance of individuality as well. You don't want to bang the creativity out of players and make them turn them into robots. The, the attributes of players, particularly the younger players coming through, is they're all very ambitious. They're all very confident in their own ability and they're impatient, right? They're yeah. great attributes for a footballer, don't get me wrong managing those three attributes is a real challenge because they typically feel they should be either playing in the first team before they're ready, or if and when they're not, they're asking their agent to go find them a club overseas because they think they should be playing in the Premier League, which again is cool, but it's actually <laughs> unrealistic because they're getting ahead of themselves. So just trying to manage that balance between letting the player be who they are, but equally ensuring they're not upsetting the, the dynamic that we try to create in the club that has been critical to the success we've had so far. I feel like that's
0: probably a style that you brought to RepuCon, Danny, in terms of the staff, because some of the people, I'm not going to name them, but some of the people that I worked with that have now, like you said earlier, have gone on to really senior roles in other organisations or or into clubs and, and things like that. I feel like there was a lot of personality within the company there were a lot of personalities so again it's like you didn't try and beat that out of people you wanted those personalities within the organization
1: yeah absolutely that's true I think for us we enjoyed celebrating our successes I think it was a real key thing about our work you go to work you spend a lot of your life at work and therefore you've got to enjoy it and you've got to celebrate successes and yeah you've got to put your head down you've got to work hard but it's easier to do that accept that if you know that your outcomes are going to be celebrated and appreciated and I think that was a real key thing for us in that organisation was Let's have fun doing it. And when we, and let's create a bit of a siege mentality in that we're an Australian <laughs> company <laughs> in our origins. We were, we were back against the wall. We'd go up with these big English companies or German companies or American companies and we're going to, we're going we're gonna to punch above our weight, and when we do, we knock someone out, we're going to celebrate, and we did, and we had a good time. As I recall, you did at one Christmas party, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> this is going out to a very yeah. diverse audience, Daddy. Some
0: people yeah, don't need to hear that story. We're no. yeah. close to
2: there's no Sean in podcasts. <laughs> exactly.
0: This was my last episode. Thank you, Daddy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I have – I wanted to ask, and this is a question as much about – how your previous experience plays into the choices you make at Sydney. It sounds like you've done a lot of work analysing how people experience the game as fans, Mm -hmm. how people watch it, how people support it, how people uh, get on board with it. I think... Sydney have some quite vocal and supportive groups within them. I think you have some real fanatics. How much did your work looking at how people receive the game, how much does that factor into the choices you make in how you put the game out there?
1: It's important. At the end of the day, a club is only a club if it has fans. I could set up my own club, and if I don't have any fans, I'm not a club. So I think you, what you've got to do is really ensure that you meet your fans' objectives and create expectations. We're in the hope-selling business. That's what we are mm. in Clubland. What gives people the impotence to go out there and buy a shirt and stand in the terraces and buy a beer and, and engage in a sort of a, a, fa- a family environment. Right. And when I say family, I don't mean picnic blanket type family. The feeling uh, of... This of is
2: my tribe.
1: Yeah, it's that tribalism is a a good way of putting it that that gives them something in their life to hang on to um, that is maybe different from their family life at home or different from their work life that is a release. And so therefore, you've got to make it fun. You've got to make it rewarding. And fan experience on game day is about that. And winning trophies is about that because that's what they thrive for celebrating. Go back to my point around celebrating success and the emotion that, that is attached to sport. It's unique to sport. It doesn't. Mm, yeah. To go back to Mark, your point around maybe entertainment and music, people, if you love going to see your favourite band and the elation that brings you and they play their favourite song, that those things are emotive triggers that make people want to keep coming back for more. Yeah. And we're in the business of providing those experiences and if we don't, then our ability to keep those people engaged in our football club is compromised. There is a linear relationship between success and growth in fans. You, you've seen rival clubs of ours who've once been really strong who might be experiencing its performance downturn, their ability to execute their growth strategy becomes really compromised and, and difficult. So I think that's about what, it's, what it is, mm. creating those experiences that make people want to keep coming back for more.
2: And it seems like you were doing some of that over the lockdown period with the exercise videos and and you were doing a lot of personal messaging, it seemed, out to the fans to keep them updated.
1: Yeah. One of my key practices is transparency. People want to know what's going on and the good, the bad and the ugly sometimes. Delivering bad news is often as important as delivering good news and I I think if the fans realise that they're in an environment where they're under the hood and nothing's going to be kept from them, then they feel much better about where they're at. It's when clubs go to ground and don't communicate, they often fill the vacuum with their own interpretation of what might be happening, which is often incorrect. So I I think I've always been of the view, if I can communicate and maintain transparency, then I'll, I'll always get people to appreciate a decision. They may not always yeah. agree with it, but if they understand yeah. the rationale, they might go, okay, I understand why he's done that. Yeah, I don't agree, agree with that. it, yeah. but I at least understand. Whereas if you don't communicate the reasons why you do things, then you leave yourself open to just yeah. you know, vitriol. that can sometimes get out of control.
2: Because there is a, a part of the fan experience that is, We were talking about it with a previous guest where I feel ownership of this team in some way, so it is my right to tear it apart sometimes. (laughs) But if I'm asking people to buy in that much, I have to expect them to care. And so by offering that transparency, by including them in that conversation, you're repaying that care that they're giving. And yeah, sometimes people will call out a decision that they don't like, but it's because it matters to Definitely. them, and that is what being a fan is.
1: And I think that's a little bit the difference between a sporting club and a and a company. When, when you're a company, you know, a bit like we were a and we had loyal clients. They very rarely came at you with, you know, an, an emotional response to something. It would normally be, I really like that or I don't like that, can you fix it? Like it was never the, the sort of emotion that you unlock in a sporting situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. It doesn't happen now and it didn't happen then. So no, no. But I do think that you are, we're in a unique Industry and, and and the subject yeah. matter is such that it, it it does derive a very different response from your and I, I would never use the word clients as fans but the consumers that consume your product and love your product yeah. they love it differently to how they might yeah. love their you know their favourite milk example.
2: And uh, and it's not too long before you guys get started again, is it?
1: Yeah, we're off to the Asian Champions League in theory in Qatar in a couple of weeks. So with the Champions League format's been shifted a little bit, a bit like they did with UEFA Champions League, and condensed the format just to get the thing complete. So we're off to Qatar on the, the 14th of November. We're there for a couple of weeks, play the, the group stage, and if we... We get ourselves out of the group into the round of 16 and beyond and great. And then we'll be back and unfortunately have to go through a couple of weeks of quarantine in, in Sydney before we kick the season off on the 27th of December. But, yeah, look, there's – go back to our point about adaptability. It's not ideal, but it is what it is, and yes. we're just grateful that we're able to play. There was times during the COVID lockdown that you know, we, we had no clarity on when we were going to restart the competition, yeah. what the future held for our broadcast deal – But I think when it's all said and done, we would have probably taken where we are right now from where we were. Absolutely so Danny we, we tend
0: to ask our guests who have influenced them and, and we call it coaches make coaches I've gained a lot of experience from the people that I've worked with obviously yourself Mark Johnson
1: and others And he's so, really
2: trying to not get kicked off this podcast yeah. Danny you clearly exactly. want the pants Mark because I don't <laughs> have any
1: juice anymore in his life so he <laughs> obviously have something going for <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so yeah so I, I just want to know uh, Danny who's influenced you uh, maybe positive or in a negative way in terms of how not to manage throughout your journey up to now and, and what have you kind of kept with you?
1: From a, a business standpoint, obviously a lot of the people that came into our world during the Repicom journey were, were an eclectic bunch of people that all brought different things that you try and take the best pieces from them and you try and avoid some of the traits that you felt aren't that transferable to the success you want to have as an individual So, or the way you want to manage people. And I, I think... yeah. If you you think, and these names would mean nothing to to your listeners, but Paul Smith, who was there from the beginning, the founder with RepuCom, with me, we, we were very similar in many ways, but very different in many ways. And we were both impatient and all those things that helped us get the company where it was, but equally we had different styles in managing people. And I talked earlier about when the company needed to grow up and put the big boy pants on and employ people that actually had done what we needed to do ourselves before and we brought a guy in called Jeff Stein who was an ex-MD um, of, or, or I think he might have been the CEO of KPMG globally at one point he'd gone into semi-retirement I think he tells the story he, he played a lot of golf and a lot of tennis and didn't improve so he decided to go back to work. And more more just out of your personal fulfillment, he was intrigued by our business, intrigued by the journey we'd been on and we were on a path to sail and we needed someone to buff the engine basically and and Jeff had a really interesting way around managing people and ensuring people did what they say they were going to do. He had that saying that I'm not going to ask anyone to do anything more than they said they were going to do and that is just about (laughs) having people say I'm going to get this done and – I'm just going to measure you on that. And if, if you get that done, great. If you don't, then we'll have a problem. And th- those two guys, although very different, you know, we really enjoyed each other's company. and we, we had a great time working together. But again, you sort of take bits and pieces out of people and apply them to your own learning. Sometimes it might be clients. You might see a client that that does something a certain way. It might be one of our coaches. It might be a player. It might be a family member. But I think you, you should always be on the lookout for Just little bits of gold that you can maybe reshape the way you approach things and think about it differently and go, actually, maybe I'm a bit too much like this and I could be a little bit more like that. But you've got to be careful. I think you still need to remain true to yourself and authentic in the way you do things if you try and suddenly turn yourself into something that you're just not capable of being. I think people see through that. So as much as you can always work on yourself and improve the way you manage people, ultimately you're going to settle with your style and it's about getting the most out of that style, I think is, is probably the key to success.
2: Love that. That's a really, I've not heard it phrased like that, but I, I think I'm on board with that more than I would expect the, I'm not going to ask anyone to do more than they said they would Yeah, like, agree up front. Yeah. And then it's expectation
1: like, management, right? That's yeah. it's so important,
2: but it also does remove that thing that we were talking about personalities. I'm not saying how I'm not judging Like how you spend your time but we've agreed a thing, do a thing The last thing we do Danny is we ask everyone if there's anything they want to plug if there's anything they want us to shout out to the listeners or they want to make uh, more known and we will put it out there and we'll put links to everything in the show notes so what do you want people to know more about?
1: Look I I think for us the A-League as a competition we're we're one of those I think there's five English speaking leagues around the world that exists, the EPL, the MLS, probably the Canadian League and the Scottish League and us. And I think if you like love your football and you love engaging in that type of an environment, then look us up. I think there's there's some great football that's played. We've got great ambition down here to continue to grow our league and compete on the continental stage in Asia and equally mm. the World Club Championship comes out of the ground after the COVID sort of disruption yeah, we hope to be there and and mixing it with some of the bigger global football clubs. But yeah, look if just take and a is, look.
2: is there somewhere people can watch it in the UK at the moment? Or yeah, it's on the BT, BT Sport in the UK. Lovely.
1: Yep. We'll also be launching a direct to consumer proposition in 2021 so that look out for that but look in the Wicked. meantime bt sport but equally just online follow us on social media and the different platforms that exist and, and hopefully you get a sense for what we're trying to do at our club and if we can pick up some fans over there in the uk then that'd be great you've got two in uh there's no Way in podcast so this is now a sydney fc
0: uh podcast
2: go sky blue <laughs> i'll send you some sh- i'll send you some
0: shirts boys
1: oh amazing <laughs> <laughs>
2: it would be the first sports u- uh, uniform <laughs> costume. I've...
1: Yeah, but you have to wear it to every pod, though, not just my. Yeah. own. How oh could no, you that's put fine. Townsend
2: on the back. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, no. no, that I can assure you, I won't do that.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure, Danny. Thank you so much for coming on. The insight's been phenomenal, and it's just really lovely to. To hear how this stuff is put together, particularly for me as someone who sits outside of it, but also I'm sure our listeners as well, recognizing this idea of what an organization like Sydney FC looks like from the inside out. So, this is a part of that kind of philosophy of transparency, is top notch. Thank you for coming on.
1: No, no problem anytime. Thanks for, for having me on, and good luck with the rest of the podcast. And Sean, great to see you again, mate. Life's treating you well.
0: Oh, Danny, superb. Thank you so much. That was awesome. As I said, it's a privilege for me to to have worked with you and now to see where you're at with Sydney. Massive football fans. So the fact that you're CEO of a club to me is just mind-blowing and I'm definitely going to look out for Sydney and your journey as it continues. And yeah, thank you once again, Danny. No problem. pleasure. All the best We're for good. us. Thank
1: you.
2: We promised a great episode and I would say that Danny delivered. Oh,
0: 100%. As someone was, as you've seen in the episode, uh, a former boss of mine, but for, <laughs> him to, for him to give me the opportunity to actually speak to him now and get his time when he is such a busy guy, he's got so much going on, as you've seen from the episode... Yeah, a lot goes into the role of a CEO, as I'm sure we can all imagine, as you said, Mark, especially at this time. So just really privileged uh, to have him on. I learned quite a lot from him. As I said in the episode, I he wasn't always there day to day because he's flying around the world and making his business into what it became. But the time I did see him, I took a few little golden nuggets away. And he's got some great one liners in this
2: episode, Mark, doesn't he? <laughs> so some great catchphrases. Hopefully the audience have enjoyed those. I now know where Sean's preference for a, uh, a slogan on the wall comes from. But like I said in the previous episode, I'm all in on that. It's had, it, has put, it has impact. Putting your values above the door has impact. Yeah, I c- we can't thank Danny enough for coming on. Just that insight into what it takes to keep a business, but also a business that's public and needs crowds in order to really flourish, to keep that going during this time, but also just a a demonstration of the attitude that you need to run something as top level as A-League club. Phenomenal episode. And so thank you, Danny, for that. We'll leave you there. If you want more of that, send us a message on social at Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Track us down on LinkedIn, Sean Gallagher and Mark Johnson. The links are in the show notes. And send us an email, Mark or Sean at knowipodcast.show. But also chuck a review up. Yes, please. Five stars on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Give us some feedback so that we know what we're doing right or wrong. uh, And we can constantly try and improve each time. That is the way we're working and the point of this podcast. So thank you, everyone. For listening. We will catch you next week for another episode and another chat with someone exciting. All that's left is for me to say goodbye from Sean. Goodbye, guys. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. You must be like the wolf pack. Teamwork. Yes!